in the book of Revelation to chapter 4, we come to the holiest of all ground. We come to the throne of Almighty God in heaven where he reigns and rules forever in uncreated glory and splendor. So Revelation chapter 4, the message will uh, develop the entire text, which is only 11 verses, so don't panic. Uh, the entire chapter tonight, Revelation 4, as we look to and look at, see what we can learn from the throne of God. Following the letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, there is a very sharp and clear break in continuity in the book of Revelation. There is a drastic contrast between what has gone before and what we see beginning in this chapter. From this point forward in the book of Revelation, the scenes of this marvelous cosmic drama, the events, the settings, the order of the things very clearly indicate a future time. There is no way as we look into Revelation 4 and following it uh, in the vision of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ in His glory, there is no way that anything anywhere on this planet could ever be said to correspond to what is described. Very clearly, John is shifting now from a time where he told us the things which are to a prophetic revelation of the things which shall take place after these things. As we began the book of Revelation, in Revelation 1, the chapter is given to a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lord of the church, the one who is marvelous and uh, wonderful in his appearance, walking among the seven golden lampstands that are representative of seven particular churches that the Lord Jesus chose to be the recipients of letters from him. But now, as we come to chapter 4, we do not see the lampstands. We do not see the same vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. We do not see the churches. We do not see the earth in present time or in future time. We see, rather, the throne of God. The church, in my opinion, is in heaven by this time. The church, according to the text of Revelation, has no part in the events of prophecy recorded in Revelation 6 through Revelation 19. As he promised the seven churches, the overcomers have been caught up, the apostates have been spewed out, and John takes those events for granted in these chapters and go straight to his main purpose which is to describe the judgment of God which shall come on the earth in the last seven years of history as we know history on this planet. The complete absence of the church 
leads me to conclude that unmistakably the church is in heaven. Now tonight we begin section 3 in the outline of the book of Revelation and there are only three sections. If you would, turn back to Revelation 1 because for the only place in the Bible, a book of the Bible tells us in plain and simple language the way the book will be constructed. In Revelation 1.19, the Lord Jesus Christ says to John the beloved apostle, Write, therefore, the things which you have seen. That's the vision of the Lord Jesus in chapter 1. The things which you have seen, past tense. And the things which are the letters to the seven churches. Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And the things which shall take place after these things. And so we come in Revelation 4 to that third division. Now if you doubt that, and I certainly cannot take credit for identifying this. Uh, somebody did it a long time ago. But just look again at Revelation 1.19 and then look at Revelation 4.1. Look at the language. After these things, I looked. After these things. What, what is the last instruction to him? The things which shall take place after these things. Revelation 4.1, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice, who was the first voice? It was the Lord Jesus. The first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. So for the only time in the Bible, we don't have to take anybody's opinions for how to outline a book of the Bible. The Lord Jesus did it for us. And beginning with Revelation 4, we see in total future predictive prophecy the things which shall take place before the Lord Jesus Christ brings time to an end. Now notice in Revelation 4.1, here is what I have called the promise of God. The church is unmentioned after Revelation 3 until Revelation 22, verse 16. You may say, well, so what? Well, the so what is that the church is mentioned about 20 times in chapters 2 and 3. 20 times. And then it disappears. It is unseen. It is undescribed. It is unaddressed. Again, until the last chapter, the last paragraph of the book, where the Lord Jesus again says to John to send these things to the churches, that they may have them. This catching up of John, and he says, a voice said to me, come up here and I will show you the things that must take place after these things. I believe that the catching up of John is a type, a picture, a foreshadowing of the catching up and catching away 
of the church before the period of time which shall be called or which is called in Revelation the Great Tribulation. When will it be? I do not know. It is a fact that predictive prophecy is very explicit. There are over 700 explicit prophecies fulfilled in the New Testament. I have no reason to expect that other explicit prophecies will not be fulfilled in time future. There are many explicit prophecies of what must take place before the end. Many of those have been fulfilled, but in every consideration of this fact, don't sell the farm yet and don't go sit on the roof. Because a, an authority no lesser than Jesus Christ himself said, of that day and of that hour knows no man, not even the Son, the Father only. Of course, there's an aeronautical engineer on the mainland who got around that day and hour uh, by saying, but he didn't say you couldn't know the week and the month. Well, no, he didn't, but he didn't think he was dealing with idiots either uh, when he made the statement. Nobody knows. God is, has so designed this universe that it magnifies him. And Jesus also made a statement in his Olivet Discourse saying at, he will come, not may come, he will come at a time that you, and he was addressing his most intimate followers, he will come at a time when you think not. So I don't know when he's coming, but he's not coming when anybody expects him. Remember that. We do not know. But it is a fact that Scripture says certain things will happen before the end, and many of those things can happen. Now there's a weakness in this approach. I'm not going to spend much time talking about it, but let me illustrate. One of the weaknesses is we were told that after Israel became a nation, that was the big thing. But then after the reborn Roman Empire, identified by certain prophetic types as the European common market, had its tenth member, the clock would start ticking. Well, too bad about that, but the European common market now has 12 members and is fixing to add some more. So back to the drawing board and guess again. The fact is that we don't know. And Scripture says... The hidden things belong to the Lord. The things that are revealed belong to us and our children. We have before God a very solemn obligation not to speculate where Scripture is silent. So many times the speculation seems so obvious and so right it's just almost uh, impossible to hold ourselves back from speculating. But do it anyway. Because he has also and already told us by the Apostle Paul that the wisdom of God is foolishness unto man. That he doesn't think like we think, Isaiah told us. That his ways are not our ways. We do not know, we do know that he is coming. But I do believe in verse 1, we see the promise of God in that we see by the foreshadowing of the Apostle John, the catching away of the church that is taught in the Bible. 
Now, the catching away has been called from a Latin term which was uh, the primary language of the professing church for a thousand years, uh, the word rapture. Now, the term rapture is not uh, in the, the Bible because the Bible was composed in various languages and none of them included Latin. But don't start automatically throwing away all the terms that are not in the Bible because the term Trinity is not in the Bible either. It is taught. We'll not read them or talk about them, but the catching away of the church before judgment is taught. Revelation 3.10, he promises the church at Philadelphia that they will be kept totally out of the judgment that will come. And yet we are told in this book that that judgment is worldwide and nobody will be kept out of it. Again, underlining the one possible conclusion that the church is gone. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15 and following, the catching away of the church is taught. In his Olivet Discourse, in Matthew 24, the catching away of the church is taught. Now, as we move through uh, Revelation, occasionally I will have a, a reason to use the term uh, talking about the Lord's coming, the rapture or the revelation. Scripture says Jesus will come for his saints. That's the rapture. He will later, and we see it in this book, in Revelation 19, he will come back to the earth to take over, to execute judgment, to set up his kingdom. That is the coming with his saints, and that is called the revelation. Put them together, and they are under the umbrella of the second coming of Jesus Christ. But the rapture taught in those verses and many others that I did not name, and the revelation, his second coming in judgment, uh, are two parts of his coming at the end of time. Now notice in verses 2 through 4, we have seen the promise of God. Here we see the princes of God. The princes of God. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. John's first vision when God takes him to show him the sweep and the panorama of the end of time, the thing that he was struck by, the thing that he saw first, the thing that he wrote first was of the throne of God. God's throne in Scripture is the sign and symbol of the universal government of God. In these verses, in this chapter, we see an unforgettable throne surrounded by an unforgettable throng of people, and we get an unforgettable thrill as we see these things. 
There isn't anything like this on earth. You know, and after Trump builds his Taj Mahal in New Jersey or wherever it is, it won't be like this either. There isn't anything like this anywhere on the earth. Everything we see in Revelation 4 and 5, where the scene is heaven before it shifts back to the earth, everything we see there is outside the realm of our human experience. Now understand the problem that John had. It is the design of God that when he communicated his word to us, though he superintended the writing so that there is not a false word in Scripture, period. The writers used their intellect, their knowledge, their background. They communicated in their language. In their language. John is taken to heaven. He sees the indescribable, and it is his job to describe it. So we need to appreciate his problems. These things are all beyond human experience. Now the stones that he describes are, have a multiple significance. Uh, if you would, in Exodus chapter 28, when they are making the, uh, the garments for the high priest, the first high priest, Aaron the brother of Moses, when they are making the garments, they made uh, an ephod with a stone representing each of the 12 tribes. And so it is no accident that these stones are chosen. The first stone, the jasper, would symbolize in its whiteness, its pure white color, the holiness of God. But it would also symbolize, we find out from reading Exodus 28, it was the stone of Reuben. Reuben was the firstborn son of Jacob. And the name Reuben means, behold, a son. And then there is the sardius stone. The sardius is bright red, signifying the blood of the lamb. But it is also the stone of Benjamin, the twelfth and last son of Jacob. So the stones, and Benjamin na Benjamin's name means the son of my right hand. So you can see, and I'll not peel off all the layers, but you can see very clearly multiple layers of significance to the stones. Reuben was the oldest, Benjamin was the youngest. And so when we see the throne of God, we still see God in relationship to his chosen people. Reuben was the first, Benjamin was the last. They include everyone in between. He is still the God of Israel. But then the emerald, and the, uh, the emerald is, the, emerald is a, a sign of the judgment of God in its green color. It is a green rainbow. It is a perfect circle, John says, encircling the throne, not an arch like most of those that we see here. It is a perfect circle representing perfection. Also representing God's covenant with the earth. For God said in Genesis, I will set in the clouds the rainbow and I will remember the covenant and the promise 
that I have made. The one on the throne is God in relation to Israel. But we don't see him. You know, I made this statement to you earlier in Revelation that the only vision of God we have is that of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is true. Because when he saw the one on the throne, he was not capable of describing him. God keeps his promises. And before the throne, there are 24 thrones for 24 elders. Now, it seems obvious to me uh, that one symbolic uh, meaning of these 24 is to represent the Old Testament saints, the Israelites, and the New Testament saints, the church. There were 12 tribes of Israel. There were 12 apostles chosen to be with Jesus in a special way. They represent all of the redeemed of all ages. They cannot be angels. Some uh, commentators and theologians through the centuries have said these are angels, but there is nowhere in Scripture that one identified as an angel was seated on a throne. Angels are servants of God. They are messengers of God. They are clothed in white. That is the priestly function. And they are seated on thrones. So they are, I believe clearly, the kingdom of priests and kings that God has made his people to be. And another point of symbolism. In the book of 1 Chronicles chapter 24, when David was planning the structure for the, the by that I mean the organizational structure, planning for the worship in the temple that Solomon would build. David appointed 24 courses or groupings of priests to be in charge of the worship of the temple. Now, right here is something very exciting if you will get hold of it. Now, don't go nuts with it, but you ought to reflect on it and you ought to think about it. We are told in Scripture that when Moses was given the diagram, the plans for the tabernacle in the wilderness, that God gave him that plan. We are told in Scripture that when God gave Solomon the details of the temple that he would build, it was a reflection of the reality in heaven. So it is not a fanciful, wild-eyed, crazy thing to do for us to see in these things reflections of the Old Testament because in that ancient era, God rolled back the drape just a little bit and showed Moses and showed David the pattern of things in heaven so that every item in the tabernacle, every detail of its design, every function, every ritual, every offering, every element, every furnishing, everything in the tabernacle and in the temple, all of it forms a poor but accurate reflection of that which we will see in heaven. 
Now they are given crowns. There are two crowns in the book of Revelation. There are five different words for crown used in the New Testament. And at some point it would, it'll be interesting as we talk about those five, but let's stay with the book of Revelation. There are two crowns in Revelation. This crown is the crown of the victor, the crown of the one who wins a race. It is a laurel wreath, normally made of leaves, but these are made of gold. They won't wear out. It's not for winning a race. It's for being crowned to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ, and it will not pass away. The other crown is the crown that belongs to God in Revelation. It is the diadem, as we have brought the word over into English, the crown of royal authority and rule. So here we see the princes of God around the throne of God. But then in verses 5 through 7, we see the prominence of God. Beginning in verse 5. And from the throne proceed flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first creature was like a lion, and the second like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of the man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. Here we see the prominence of God. Judgment in Scripture always starts with God. When it is time for judgment to fall, God exercises His prerogatives. And the thunder and the lightning represent the wrath of God in the coming judgment on the earth. What we are seeing here as John is taken to heaven is the beginning of the end of time as we know it. The beginning of the end. There are the seven lamps of fire. The complete, perfect, changeless, true judgments of God that will come. Fire is also a symbol of judgment. Seven in Scripture is the number of God, the number of perfection, the number of completeness. And then there are the seven spirits of God. This represents, I believe, the deity and the sovereignty of God, the Holy Spirit, seen in His power. He is omniscient. He knows all, every thought, word, and deed. He knows the time, the place, the motive, the act, the deed, the result, the consequences of every sinful act. And when he comes to execute judgment, there will be no false evidence presented. There will be none needed. And there will be no appeal from his judgment, for there will not be an unfair verdict, possibly. Now, another of those things that is a very beautiful symbol is seen in the sea of glass. The sea of glass. If you would look at one of those diagrams of the a tabernacle or of the temple that you may have in a Bible or in a book, you will see that there is a thing identified as the Bronze Sea, S-E-A, in a certain place in the temple and the tabernacle. Now what that was for was for the priest to wash and cleanse themselves 
before they went to serve God, before they went to the temple to offer offerings, before they went to the holy part of the temple to do the work of the priesthood, they had to be cleansed. And so every priest would first go up the stairs, and he had to go up to the stairs because this, uh, the sea in the temple and in the tabernacle was a rather large thing. It was 15 feet across and 8 feet high, 45 feet in circumference. And they had to go up the stairs and wash themselves in the bronze sea. But what about the water? He says, in the sea it is glass like crystal. How are they supposed to wash themselves? They don't have to anymore. All of that is over. All of the cleansing for all ages has been completed by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a beautiful picture. But what I want you to notice is that whereas the events John prophesies are future, that sea in heaven is full of crystal now. And as the book of Hebrews says, there is no more offering for sin, for He has appeared once for all at the end of time to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. There is no more need for us to do anything else to cleanse ourselves. He has done it by the blood of His cross. What a beautiful and marvelous picture. The water is solidified. The verdict is in. The flawless, formal, fearful, factual, and yes, there are more F's. Fundamental, final, fatal judgment of God is about to be declared. And then there are four living creatures. Uh, this is a very awkward word for us to bring over into English. It doesn't mean animals. It's not a word that can mean wild animals or, or critters like, you know, uh, go bump in the night and hide in the woods. It's not that kind of thing. The nearest that we can come to it accurately in English is to say that these are living ones or living beings. We can't say persons. That's not accurate. That's not the word. They are living ones. They represent, perhaps, as the great reformer Calvin said, aspects of the character of Jesus Christ as they are seen in the four Gospels. Calvin said that when we see these four, the first, uh, it says here, is... Uh, Like a lion, Calvin said that when we see the first living one, it is Christ as the Lion of Judah. And in Matthew, Christ is seen as the King, the Lion of Judah. In Mark, he is seen as the servant. And the calf is a young oxen that was a beast of service, a beast of burden. In Luke, we see Christ as the Son of Man, and the third living one is like a man. And in the Gospel of John, we see Him in all of His glory as the Son of God, represented by the eagle. Here is the prominence of God. 
but really the heart of the chapter, and we will see it re recapitulated again in, in chapter 5, the heart of what goes on around the throne of God is not the magnificent sights, nor the sounds, nor the living creatures, nor the beauty. The heart of it is the praise of God. And that is what we see in verses 8 through 11, the praise of God. The form and the function of the living creatures is singular and unique. Let's read uh, quickly, verses 8 through 11. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty who was and who is and who was to come. And when the living creature give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy art thou our Lord and our God to receive glory and honor and power for thou didst create all things and because of thy will they existed and were created. Now, as they say in South Arkansas, if that, doesn't, if that don't light your fire, your wood's wet. One of the things that is very instructive here, these angels, these living ones, are probably the cherubim. Now, what we know from the limited amount of, in, of information the Bible gives us about angels is that there are different classes of angels. The cherubim, when we see them, are closest to God. They are nearest the throne. They represent the highest order of created intelligence. They are magnificent in their own right. It says that they are full of eyes before and behind, in front and in the back. They have keen and clear insight. They have spiritual perception. They see the future and the past clearly. And the highest created intelligence in the world, what do they do in the universe? What do they do with their time? They praise God. As you know by now, if you listen at all, I dearly uh, love the study of Bible doctrine. And I love some of the documents and the expressions of faith that those who have gone before us through all of the centuries have given us. I love the old confessions of faith that our Baptist forefathers adopted uh, as long ago as the 1500s and again in England in the 1600s and on this continent up until the present day. And they all, until the most recent one, reflected that understanding of the glory and the majesty of God. They all did. And we are told in them all the chief end of man is the glory of God. The chief end of man is the glory of God. In the old Baptist catechism that they used to teach the children essential truth, and it is not a bad idea anyway. You want to do that? I recommend it. 
There is a question for the children early in the catechism. Who made you? God. What else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make you? God made all things for his own glory. If you do not have time to focus on our glorious God, you better find some. Because if you do not understand that God is glorious, you've never had a very good look at Him. The smartest kid on the block, the highest created intelligence, dwelling beyond time in a place that had no beginning and that has no ending, with every moment, with every energy that they have, with everything that they are allowed to do, they spend all of it praising and honoring and glorifying God. The praise of God high and lofty creatures, but they abase themselves at his feet. Now this is free. It's got nothing to do with the message, and I promise to hurry. The mother of all sin is pride. The mother of all sin is pride. And when you see God, pride is destroyed. There is nothing less godly than pride. I thought Paul was uncharacteristically trying to be quite gentle when he said, if anyone thinks that he knows something when he knows nothing, he deceives himself. Their worship is both instinctive, they do it naturally, and it is indeed the instinct of anyone touched by the grace of God to worship God. It is instinctive, and it is instructive, and you ought to make it a point to read for an indefinite number of days what they do around God's throne day and night, now and forever, and start practicing, because one of these days you're going to join them, and that's what you're going to do. What a vision. They praise God. We too can praise Him for our salvation, for His creative power, that He is the ultimate cause of all creation. We can acknowledge God is the source and the sustainer of our lives as the creator of the universe and of all life. He called us into being by the word of His mouth. His promises are good, he has all power. He will do as he has said. And I suggest to you that it is entirely proper that we begin right here and right now to do what we're going to be doing forever. Praise, honor, and worship him. May we pray. Gracious Father, I know very well how John feels in not being able to describe what he saw because I cannot even describe what I read. But Lord, I thank you.
that behind the veil where those hidden things are that belong to you, in various times and ways and places through the history of your work with your people, you have given us a glimpse, you have given us a shadow, an idea, an inkling. And I thank you that you allowed the apostle to get close enough to the throne to see the end of all things. Lord, show us ourselves, not in order that we may be destroyed by what we see, but that our sin and our pride may be eradicated and that we may even now begin to live and fulfill the purpose for which you made us. Father, I love you and I thank you so much for what you've done for me. I thank you for these, your people, for the great and marvelous gift and blessing they are to me. And I pray that by your grace and for your glory, you would do among us and in us and through us whatever you choose. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I do not know your heart. I do not know your need. But I do know your purpose in life. I invite you to the Lord Jesus Christ. What an incredible picture we'll see of him in Revelation 5 next week. I invite you to trust him as your Savior and as he commanded to share that trust in a public forum where people love you and confess him before men. I invite you to come and let us pray with you about your spiritual condition, about your salvation, about your commitment to the Lord, your relationship to him. I invite you to invest your life in this fellowship, to join this church. I invite you to kneel and pray, but most of all I beg you, whether you come forward or whether you stay put, that before you leave this room in this moment, you will hear his voice, you will obey. What he would have you do, do it right now, do it quickly. We sing during this time of commitment hymn 349, if you need the book, have thine own way, right now and quickly, would you do his will for your life as we stand while we sing?